0: He's campaigned against the Fed, but he wants an easier Fed, okay? Uh, I want a Fed that Wall Street doesn't like, all right? It's totally different. I want a Fed that's prudent, uh, that uh, pursues sound money policy. Trump wants a Fed that prints even more money than the flood we already have.
1: Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist and former Australian Treasury official. The aim of this show is to help you better understand the big economic issues affecting all our lives. We do this by considering the theory, evidence, and by hearing a wide range of views. I'm delighted that you can join me for this episode. Please check out the show notes for relevant information. Now on to the show. Hello, thanks for tuning into the show. My guest this episode is David Stockman, who was President Reagan's first director of the Office of Management and Budget. Prior to the Reagan administration, he had served as a congressman, and after he left the administration, he had a career in private equity and business. David has a new book out titled, Trump's War on Capitalism, and I was delighted to speak with him about it. David is a frank and fearless commentator, and I was never left wondering what he really thought about the former president's economic policies. Indeed, David has a long history of frank commentary, and he first became famous for some frank remarks he made in 1981 to journalist William Greider about the Reagan administration's budget strategy. He's also tangled with Paul Krugman, among other prominent commentators in the US. I really enjoyed this conversation with David, and I hope you do too. Regardless of whether you agree with him or not, I think you have to respect his ability to argue his points, and he well demonstrates that ability in this conversation. I get the sense he's incredibly resilient as he's copped a lot of criticism over the years. He's had to make a multi-million dollar legal settlement with the SEC. He's even had to fend off criminal charges. They did end up being dropped by the SEC, I should note. All of this is to say that he's had a very interesting career and life experience and he's someone worth hearing from in my view. Now, David expresses some very thought-provoking views in this episode, and I expect you'll have some thoughts on what he says, and you may have some thoughts on some of the things I say, so please get in touch and let me know your own thoughts. My contact details are in the show notes, as are links related to the book and about David. Righto, we'd better get into the episode. I hope you enjoy my conversation with David Stockman about Trump's war on capitalism. David Stockman, thanks for joining me on the program very happy to be with you. We've got a lot to talk about here, I think. Absolutely. Well, you've written a uh, a very uh provocative book, a very uh very in-depth book looking at the policies of uh the former president Donald Trump and uh, prospects for a new term if uh I mean it's looking very possible that uh Donald Trump could be uh in the White House again next year. So, your book is called Trump's war on capitalism. Now, this is uh this is interesting because to many of us Donald Trump is the exemplar of the American capitalist and yet you argue that he is undertaking a war on capitalism and even more strongly, well, as strongly you you argue that he is a clear and present danger to capitalist prosperity. Could you explain, David, how, do you, how can we reconcile these things? I mean, Donald Trump does seem to be uh, the exemplar of a capitalist, but yet he's a threat to capitalism. How do we reconcile these facts?
0: Well, those are great questions. Uh, I don't think really he's an exemplar of capitalism, and we can get into that. I think he's an exemplar of getting lucky when the Fed created so much inflation and in asset prices and made debt so cheap that if you were a speculator in New York City real estate or elsewhere, you po- possibly made a lot of book uh, uh, wealth. But I don't think it was a capitalist genius behind it. Uh, That's the first point. The second point is that his policies were really um, almost uh, anti-capitalist in some common sense notion of conservative economics. To have a healthy capitalist economy, you need three things. One- fiscal rectitude. You can't be running up the public debt, spending like there's no tomorrow, and having the government grow and mushroom uh, and impinge uh, in every direction on the economy. Uh, you can't have uh, easy money and a central bank that is flooding the system uh, with uh, cheap credit and excess liquidity. You can't have a government that is really anti-free market, which is what, uh, uh, you know, trade protectionism is all about. And he's the biggest protectionist in the White House, you know, uh, since, I don't know, Hoover signed uh, Smoot-Hawley in 1931. So all of his policies were really in the wrong direction. Now I do concede in the book that uh, the one abiding virtue that Donald Trump has is he's got all the right enemies. Okay, the establishment hates him. Uh, The New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, uh, the Washington, what I call uniparty establishment. The leadership and the long-standing careerists of both parties can't stand him. But basically, it's because he's an outsider, it's because he's unwilling to conform, and he's pretty obnoxious (laughs) and unpredictable. That's why they're against him. The the point of the book, though, is none of his his policies were wrong, even if he had the right enemies, and nothing that he did helped the economy or addressed the huge long-term problems we have of a runaway uh, public debt, of a government that's way too big and too costly and too intrusive, and especially at the heart of the matter, Uh, A central bank that uh, is out. It's a rogue central bank. It's out of control. And yet Trump was constantly on their case demanding even easier money, lower interest rates, even more, uh, you know, of the same that got us uh, into, you know, the huge uh, bubbles and troubles that came from them. So uh, the point of my book was to say he had a chance. He's got a four-year record. We can look at it. It's terrible. It offers nothing in terms of uh, remediation of our great problems and uh, putting us in a different direction for the future. So, uh, you know, don't waste the opportunity. Uh, And, you know, that's about where I come out.
1: Right. Oh. Okay. So you write about, what you call the Donald's reckless fiscal and monetary policy. So we might talk about fiscal first. Now, among other things, you talk about the most grotesque act of fiscal malfeasance in American history. So that was something that uh, Trump was associated with, you argue. Are you talking about the the big tax cut, the Trump tax cut in 2017? Is that, is that something you see as as reckless?
0: That's part of it. But I'm looking at the overall picture and the uh, data, the big uh, top line data on spending and borrowing on the public debt. Now, let's just take it down to the uh, core metric, which is the public debt. I mean, if you're running huge deficits and spending uh, far beyond your willingness or ability to tax, uh, it comes out in the public debt. When Trump became president in round terms the public debt was about 20 uh, trillion when he left it was 28 that's 8 trillion of growth 8 trillion of debt public debt in 4 years you let me ask the question when did when did we get the first 8 trillion of public debt and how long did it take us to get there? The answer is in 203. it took us 216 years, 43 presidents to rack up 8 trillion in debt. He did it in four years. That's kind of uh, the bottom line. It puts it in perspective in terms of how big uh, the error was. If we look at other more conventional measures, you get the same picture. The average uh, uh, deficit to GDP, and that's another good ratio, you know, how big is the deficit or a surplus relative to the national economy? Well, the deficit averaged two and a half percent of GDP for all the presidents from the early 50s through 2016. The, the deficit under Trump's four years averaged nine percent of GDP, uh, almost four times more than had been the average uh, going back for If you look at spending, I think that's important. And again, let's take the inflation out of the picture and look at it in inflation adjusted or real uh, terms, real spending. Uh, Trump averaged 7% per year uh, during his tenure. For instance, big spending Obama right before him was 2% per year in real terms. Uh, Reagan, when I was there, was 3% uh, per year in real terms. The average was 2.5. So again, Trump was, you know, three times, uh, in some cases, four times more uh, in terms of the growth rate of spending than had occurred uh, historically. So, you know, if when you go through those kinds of measures, and, and then, of course, it all culminated, I just want to put this last point in. Uh, In uh, 2020, when he made the huge mistake of shutting down, locking down the economy based on very bad advice from some very bad doctors that work for the federal government. If he had any principles about, you know, uh, property rights and personal uh, liberty and constitutional due process, he never would have ordered a lockdown of the economy. But uh, in any event, uh, he did that uh, in uh, 2020. And as a result of that, uh, we had just an explosion of spending to bail out the economy that the government had ordered to close. And I'm talking about the $2 trillion worth of stimulus measures that were passed with his uh, uh, urgent, you know, with his uh, uh, support uh, in 11 days. I mean, this was an $800, 800 page, I mean, bill, that contained $2.2 worth of the so-called CARES Act, uh, uh, you know, bene- uh, 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 unemployment insurance benefits, the checks uh, to 100 million uh, households, uh, massive amounts of money to education, health, uh, other institutions. The point is they passed $2.2 trillion of spending in 11 days. Nobody read the 800 pages, and that was just the warm-up. He then, you know, insisted on the second... Uh, stimulus or uh, COVID relief bill in December that he signed right before he left. That was another $2 trillion, and it paved the way for the last $2 trillion uh, that uh, Biden put on top of it when he came in, basically to implement an extension of all of the uh, freebies and free stuff and giveaways that Trump had put into place during 2020. Well, the reason I'm dwelling on this is it added up to $6.5 trillion of spending Almost sight on scene in terms of legislative review and scrutiny. It happened in 12 months, March 2020 to March 2021. And that in itself was equal to 150% of the pre existing budget. In other words, in 12 uh, months, they passed emergency spending that was 1.5 times bigger than the entire federal budget, defense, <laughs> social security, interest payments student aid, uh, and, and all the rest of it. This is how far it was out of control. And he was sitting in the Oval Office with a veto pen uh, in his hand, theoretically. But obviously, his stubby little fingers never got near the veto pen. He didn't veto anywhere, anything. He, he waved it on. And so therefore, you have to blame him for the most outrageous, egregious outbreak of fiscal uh, madness that we've ever seen in peacetime or wartime in this country, and at, when you uh, prove that's where you know that's where you come out, that you know that's his record. It's undeniable. The facts are all there. Why in the world uh, the MAGA fans <laughs> and uh, Republicans, uh, the Republican rank and file? want him to have another chance uh is really beyond me but i wrote this book to just, just in case someone cares about uh you know the reality and about the facts uh that if they do put him back in they're probably going to put him on the ticket and if the country uh, puts him back in the oval office uh, there's no uh there should be no confusion about what you're getting you're getting a worse you're getting an a uh, exacerbated a case of all the problems that we have already
1: today right okay in terms of um that spending you, i thought that was interesting you compared the growth rate of spending under trump versus uh other presidents including reagan and i, I was surprised it was uh yeah th- there was that stark difference that's due to that that pandemic uh stimulus is it that you know, one and a half times the budget that was approved in whatever yeah, eleven yeah. days or however many uh that was an extraordinary yeah. uh fact you you mentioned there. Now, one thing I'd I'd like to ask you about, because I'm in Australia, so I'm less familiar with exactly what happened in the States than I am here. I mean, I've seen it, you know, I, I saw all the, the commentary and but you you said that you you blame Trump for the lockdowns or partly you blame Trump for the lockdowns. The impression I got was he was campaigning against the lockdowns. Am I wrong on that? I thought it was done by the states.
0: (laughs) No, but uh, yeah, it's a great question. But if you go back and look at the uh, calendar, uh, the TikTok, day by day, week by week, uh, it's very evident that another reason why Trump is unfit is that he doesn't have any principles He doesn't have any uh, guiding uh, philosophy. He flies by the seat of his ample britches. And whatever seems to strike his fancy at any moment in time, he goes with because he's so damn arrogant that he doesn't even begin to understand what he doesn't know. And basically, when it comes to uh, economics in the world and governing uh, a $26 trillion economy, uh, he knows very little. I mean, he's basically ignorant. So uh, uh, when when the uh, uh, COVID came along for a few days, he was saying, well, you know, the flu every year... To, X number of people, 38,000, 50,000 people uh, succumbed to the flu one way or another. We're used to this. There is, what's the uh, crisis? Six days later, as a result of a lot of uh, pressure that came into the Oval Office, led by uh, you know his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, bringing in uh, a couple of scientists who wanted a chance to really exercise some power, uh, convinced him, that uh, it was not only not the flu, but it was something like the Black Plague and that uh, every all stops had to be pulled out. And that's on the 16th of March, he gave the speech, uh, You know, uh, two weeks to flatten the curve and uh, turn Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and the rest of that crowd of malpracticing doctors loose on the country. And before we knew it, the entire economy was on its knees. And I got data in the book that lays out how severe this was. Two measures I think uh, give you a, dramatic, a pretty dramatic uh, indication of the hammer that Donald Trump brought down on the US economy and therefore the world economy at the end of the day on March 16th when he uh, authorized uh, you know, uh, two weeks to flatten the curve and turn the uh, uh, CDC loose on uh, daily uh, economic life. First, in the second quarter, uh, when it hit, that was ground zero of the lockdown, second quarter of 2020, GDP in the United States declined at a 34% annualized rate. What does that mean? Well, in the worst recession that we've had in the post-war period, which is the Great Recession, you know, in 2008, uh, the the, uh, uh, annualized uh, 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 fall in GDP was 8% during the worst quarter. Okay, the worst quarter was 8%. uh, And in the second quarter of 2020, uh, because of the government ordered lockdown, not some kind of cyclical, uh, you know, uh, uh, tumble of the economy, the the government ordered the Trump ordered lockdown, GDP declined uh, at a 32% rate, just, uh, you know, startling, uh, uh, you know, unprecedented. Now, the other measure I use a lot in the book is if you look where it hit the hardest, the lockdowns, it was obviously in what I call uh, the social interaction venues, uh, restaurants, bars, sports arenas, gyms, uh, uh, malls, and the rest of it. And and now that arena, that area of the economy in the BLS uh, statistics, labor department statistics is called leisure and hospitality. That's, you know, all those industries are in that group. In April 2020, which is ground zero, the heart of the lockdown, hours worked in the leisure and hospitality sectors declined by 56% compared to the previous month. Half of the employment, half of the hour, not just the headcounts or people, but actually hours worked disappeared. Now, how big is a 56% decline in employment? in that core sector of the economy? Well, it's so big that it reduced the actual working level. In other words, the hours worked, the number of people on the uh, the pay pay clock to a level not seen since the spring of 1979. (laughs) In other words, it rolled back the clock 43 years in terms of the slow and steady and relentless growth that occurred in that sector it was wiped out in 30 days, and it's taken years to recover, and we're still not back to where we were in February 2020. So the the lockdowns are fading, you know, because as time passes, things that seem pretty bad right at the moment they were happening, uh, suddenly... Uh, you know, uh, seem maybe not so bad, but the lockdowns were dramatic. Uh, They were, um, you know, uh, the biggest, uh, you know, thunderbolt to hit the economy, uh, I think, uh, ever, at least in the United States. So uh, he, that that was the consequence of Trump uh, swiveling on a dime from nothing to worry about to the sky is falling. And then and here's where I really put the um uh, pin the tail to the donkey so to speak he created this thing called the White House uh, uh coronavirus task force and it met day after day and they had a big press conference at the end of the day it was like a reality show from the White House uh, press room day after day in which uh Fauci was up there Burks was up there a lot it, it, Pence, Vice President Pence, and others. And they just scared the living daylights out of the country, even as all of these orders from the public health departments were being implemented uh, at the um, urging of uh, the CDC and the White House. So this, this whole lockdown catastrophe was born, bred, and perpetuated from the Oval Office. And I uh, go by uh, the famous aphorism. You might not be, as an Australian, might not be uh, aware of it, but Harry Truman, famous president, you know, at the end of World War, after World War II, uh, had this this slogan on his desk that said, the buck stops Mm -hmm. here. In other words, uh, I'm going to take responsibility for what happens. Well, in this case, the buck stops with Trump on the whole disaster of the COVID uh, response, the pandemic response, the lockdowns, uh, the damage that it did to the economy, uh, the costs that were generated in terms of borrowing and deficits and uh, the public debt, you know, all of it uh, you have to ultimately put on his doorstep because if he had stuck to his guns, (laughs) now listen to this, this is unbelievable. If he had stuck to his guns of March 11. When he said, uh, you know, this will be handled in the normal way. We're used to these, uh, uh, you know, uh, viruses coming along, uh, and uh, we can handle it. If he had stayed with that position, none of this disaster would have happened. Right. Yeah. It wasn't the virus that caused the economy to plunge into a black hole. It was the lockdowns.
1: Right. Just on the what Trump could have done. I think this is an interesting perspective, and it, it's. Yeah, I think this is probably, this is, might be the perspective that gets you the most uh, pushback or reaction. I think it's an interesting uh, proposition. What I'm interested in is whether, like, say Trump just said, oh, okay, we'll ignore the, we, we think this is a minor virus. Uh, I'm not saying necessarily it is, but let's say Trump says that. Could he have actually directed the, the states? Could he have directed, uh, who was it, Andrew Cuomo and Gavin Newsom? To, to open up, could he have done anything? Did he have the levers to be able to do that?
0: Yes, because they responded. I don't think they were sitting there in Al- Albany, New York, where uh, Cuomo was, uh, or Sacramento, and said, you know, this. Uh, the, these uh, reports we're getting sound like this is a pretty terrible virus. We're going to start systematically closing uh, bars and restaurants and malls. They were doing that in response to the guidelines, the recommendations, and the pressure uh, from the CDC, which was the federal government, and it was controlled, obviously, uh, by uh, Trump and the CDC, and in turn, was responding to the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Which was being run by Fauci, which was being run by Pence, as as delegated by uh, Trump. So it was all coming right out of the Oval Office. They, they, they wouldn't. I, I don't think, and I've you know been in politics since the 1960s in America. So I think maybe my judgment is not totally bad. But I'm absolutely certain that without the imprimatur, without the urging, without all the hysteria. Coming from Fauci and that White House task force, these people would have not they wouldn't have stuck their neck out and closed down their economy because every one of them was creating political problems for themselves. Uh, It wasn't, you know, that this was like some great winning political opportunity. Let's close down all the gyms in in the state like they did in New Jersey and New York and let's shut down the malls and let's uh, put the restaurants out of business. They're sitting there saying, you know, this would be some real uh, good politics for us. Of course not. The governors weren't saying that. They were doing it ultimately because they were being pressured. Uh, They were being encouraged uh, by Uh, the federal government and particularly by uh, the uh, Trump White House.
1: Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor.
0: If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Now back to the show. Can I ask now about one of the things that uh, President Trump would claim was that he had the greatest economy ever. The economy was in the strongest position ever, and then it was the the virus that you know, COVID that came along and and wrecked everything. Uh, but you you actually question that. You you don't think that the U.S. economy was the greatest economy ever pre-COVID. What, what's your uh, what does your analysis uh, uh, show you there, yeah. David? What do you conclude there?
0: Yeah, good question, and I, I don't. question it myself, the data proves it. In other words, I just did a lot of research and served up the data that comes out of the statistical mills of the U.S. government, and you can measure it seven different ways and you get the same answer. But let's start with real growth. After all, that's the big, uh, you know, uh, summary metric for economic uh, uh, performance and uh, health, uh, and real growth of the economy was at, grew at 1.5% during Trump's four years, the lowest rate of any presidential term going back to Harry Truman, again, the, to 1950. The average uh, over that entire period... Um, you know, uh, nine presidents, uh, 11 business cycles during that period, recessions uh, and recoveries. Uh, we had a couple of wars during that period. We had any number of crises. So in other words, what we're talking about here is the uh, long term trend performance of the U.S. economy from 1954 to 2016, uh, right before uh, Trump got in. It averaged 3.04 percent or double. Uh, the uh, growth that occurred uh, during the Trump uh, period. So you can't on the, on that summary. You can't make that statistic go away. That's that's the measure mm-hmm. of the whole uh, ball of wax. And his growth rate was half of the norm. It was a third. Uh, basically, of uh, uh, the highest performance with Kennedy Johnson was 5%. It was uh, maybe 40% of what I uh, remember during the Reagan uh, period uh, when the growth rate was 3.5%. So the idea that he kept uh, Tweety and keeps to this very day, you know, talking about the great MAGA economy that uh, he uh, brought the greatest economy ever is totally refuted, contradicted by the facts. Now, that's one of them. We can look at job growth. And of course, <laughs> the answer there is pretty uh, interesting. He's the only president since Herbert Hoover in which n- there was no job growth. <laughs> You'd never know that from listening to Donald Trump's uh, boisterous speeches. But the fact is, when he took office in January uh, 2017, there were one. 145.5 million jobs, non-farm jobs in the U.S. Uh, when he left office in January 2021, uh, uh, there were 142.5. In other words, the, the uh, job amount, uh sh- shrunk by 3 million jobs during his term. Nothing like that ever happened before. Every other president, there's more jobs than when they start, not because of their virtue necessary or, or or their policy is because a capitalist economy, unless it's really thwarted, tends to expand and grow and create more jobs. Trump was the exception. Now you can say, well, again, it was the lockdowns and it was the uh, spring of 19 uh, or 2020 uh, catastrophe. But even if you take that out of the picture and you look at Trump and pretend his... uh, His uh, administration ended in February 2020, which is, you know, the month before uh, the COVID, uh, the pandemic hit. Um, He averaged 145,000 new jobs a month in that period until the eve of the COVID or pandemic hit to the economy. Uh, Obama had 215,000. So, you know, he was a third shorter than Obama, (laughs) and Obama was considered uh, pretty bad. If you look at overall uh, employment growth, uh, even taking uh, the uh, pandemic period out, uh, the growth rate under Trump was about 1.4%. It had averaged 2.5% in the decades and decades before. Uh, And finally, I think the... uh, you know, the bottom line measure of economic health and, of, you know, the, the standard of living on Main Street, you know, for the broad middle class is really per capita GDP, real GDP per capita. If it's rising, that means the living standards are rising. And if it's not, Uh, you have a problem. Well, the average, uh, again, during the 60 years post-war was 2.5 percent, and uh, during uh, Trump's period, it was 1 percent. In other words, the growth rate was, you know, barely two-fifths of the normal rate on this uh, basic uh, metric, uh, which is uh, real GDP per capita. Uh, So uh, when we can look at other things, too, the savings rate collapsed during his uh, administration, despite the big tax cut, uh, we we haven't gone into in detail yet. But despite that, uh, investment growth uh, was lower uh, during the Trump period uh, than in any other uh, administration going back again to 1950. So, you know, you you ask the question, where's the proof? Is it in the pudding? The answer is no. (laughs) there's there's no proof whatsoever of his boast, uh, you know, about the greatest economy ever. So what I say in the book is it wasn't uh, the greatest economy ever. It was really the greatest con job ever.
1: Right. Okay. So uh, on the tax cut, you mentioned the tax cut before, you mentioned that this didn't, in your view, it didn't lead to, you know, a, a, an economic yep. uh, surge or a surge right. in investment. And can you explain what happened with that tax cut and uh, where, where did you where did the money go? Uh, you, you you talk about that in the book. Sure. Uh, well, the, the, if you want to look at the tax cut, you have
0: and, and it was clearly skewed to encouraging reinvestment by business, both corporations and you know uh, individual proprietors. That's why the corporate rate went down from 28 to 21, why they put in the equivalent 20% uh, uh, deduction for unincorporated businesses. Now, in all, that cost $1.7 trillion over the first 10 years in revenue loss, and that was supposed to then, uh, you know, uh, uh, cause a a surge of investment. But if I look at the investment rate, um, by that I mean real investment in the business sector, in the five years before the tax cut became effective in 2018, um, it was actually well higher than the growth rate in the next five years after the tax cut took effect. So if you spend $1.7 trillion that you don't have because it was all deficit finance, they didn't cut spending to pay for the revenue loss, and you get not no gain at all, but actually a worse trend performance in real terms, inflation adjusted terms, then you have to ask, uh, how could you possibly justify that if you were borrowing money for a huge rate of return? You might argue, well, let's let's try that. But if the rate of return is even smaller than what was already built in, uh, it's uh, dubious. Now, where the money went then, because clearly corporations and uh, individual proprietors paid a lot less in taxes. The answer is it went into a record surge in stock buybacks and in corporate MA deals and in other forms of you know, leverage recaps and so forth, other forms of financial engineering that basically flow money to Wall Street and to the uh, top of the uh, economic ladder because that's where all the stock is owned in other words 93% of the stock in the United States is probably true in Australia as well I'm not sure but 93% is owned by the top 10% of households and about 48% is owned by the top 1%. So if you have a huge to- corporate tax cut 1.7 trillion that produces no gains in investment and therefore future growth and uh, job creation but instead Ends up being flushed back into Wall Street, uh, you, you know, in the form of stock buybacks and uh, fin- other financial engineering, which then flows to the very top of the income scale. <laughs> you know, you've got a double bad. Okay, you add mm. it to the debt that the whole public's going to be paying uh, service. You charges interest on forever, and uh, you put the money. Uh, you took the money out of uh, the economy and sent it uh, to the top of, uh, to the very wealthy and to the most affluent uh, people. Makes no sense.
1: Right. Okay. I'd like to ask about, and go back to this point you made in the book about the Donald's reckless fiscal and monetary policies being doubly bad. We've talked about the fiscal policies. What were his monetary policies? So monetary policies handled by the Federal Reserve, isn't it? What, what's, uh, what's, uh, what was Trump's role there? Okay, that's
0: again a another important topic. As far as I'm concerned, the number one, number two, and number three policy problems in the United States today and the world is the Fed and the other central banks. They're out of control. Their printing presses have been running red hot uh, for decades and decades. One measure of that I think is startling. If you take all the central banks of the world and add their balance sheets together, uh, in twenty uh, in the year 2000, it was $3 trillion. Uh, now, why is it important to take the balance sheets? Well, because that's just a measure of how much money they printed, okay? The, you know, when they print money, they buy assets and put it on the balance sheet. It's a good, simple uh, metric to measure how much money they're printing. It was $3 trillion at the turn of the century. It is $44 trillion today, all right? So in barely two decades, uh, they have, <laughs> you know, they've just flooded the world financial system, uh, uh, you know, with the freshly minted uh, credit uh, that, um, you know, ultimately created bubbles and inflation of every uh, kind. So the uh, question then is, what about Fed policy now, given that backdrop? And um, my point is, yes, in nominally, the Fed is independent and they make their own decisions. But my uh, quarrel with Trump is twofold. One, he made enormous, put enormous public pressure on them, you know, practically week after week to lower interest rates and to make money even easier than it already was. So uh, he was making the wrong advice. And secondly, he was doing it at a time in the business cycle when it was desperately important for monetary policy to be normalized. I never agreed with all the huge money printing that Bernanke undertook in uh, 208, 209, 210. But, you know, people argued it was an emergency. It was a one-time thing. And even Bernanke himself said in 2011 uh, we're we're out of the woods now and we're going to normalize the balance sheet. We're going to shrink it back to something reasonable because it was 900 billion when the uh you know great financial crisis st- uh, struck the uh, uh Wall Street meltdown in September 2008 and uh by the peak it was 4.4 uh, trillion. And, uh, you know, everybody agreed that it needed to be uh, normalized and interest rates were being held practically to zero for years and years and years. And I document a lot of this in the book and that they needed to normalize as well, because when you make money dirt cheap, you're just inviting speculation on Wall Street and you're inviting Congress to spend money it doesn't have because it's so cheap to borrow uh, down in Washington. So it was time for normalization. The Fed was trying to do that by slowly raising rates and by getting out of the QT business and actually, or QE business, and actually shrinking its balance sheet they had initiated before Trump got there, something called QT, quantitative tightening. uh, And they were slowly trying to shrink the balance sheet back, uh, just like Bernanke had promised they would. And Trump was constantly on their case not to do either. And as a result of that, the Fed just kept interest rates uh, at zero. It uh, kept the balance sheet uh, massively uh, bloated, uh, still is around $4 trillion. And uh, that paved the way for the huge inflationary morning after that we had in 2020, 2021, and up into the present. So... It, it, the timing of the cycle screamed out because we were well into the recovery, the longest recovery in history. It, was, it screamed out for normalization, get back uh, to something that was sustainable. And Trump was pounding the table, uh, you know, day after day. Don't you dare do it. And even you know leaking to the press that he was investigating whether he could fire Powell or whether he could you know uh, clean house at the Fed and so forth. So therefore, when it comes to something as fundamentally important as sound money, Trump is the worst president, and I say this advisedly that we ever had the very worst. You know, far worse than Jimmy Carter, far worse than Lyndon Johnson. Far worse as far as I've studied it than FDR, maybe even William Jennings Bryan if he had been elected president. So uh, you uh, that, that's another big uh, black mark uh, on the record.
1: Okay. You don't blame Richard Nixon for uh taking the US out of uh, Bretton Woods. I know, you oh, off the gold standard. I, yeah, you yeah, know I
0: I do. Yeah, and I, I'm I don't know how I missed that one, but he he was he was even worse than Richard Nixon and Nixon okay. was bad enough.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. It's a, it's a yeah, it's a, a lot a, I think your discussion of the Fed and Fed policies—it's it, definitely worth reading. So, uh, thanks for that, David. One last thing: uh, in the uh, the forward to the book by you've got uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., he says that you're a crusader against the corrupt merger of state and corporate power in the U.S. Is that is that? Is that how you see yourself and like how bad is it in the states? I mean, I see I hear the talk about the swamp and you hear about the power of lobbyists and all of that and and the corruption. I mean, how bad is it in your view in the the US at the moment? Well, oh,
0: I think it's I think it's terrible because the two worst things we have going are the military industrial complex, this massively bloated defense budget and the pretensions of Washington that we're the hegemon of the world with bases all over, forever wars all over, and interventions everywhere, that is due to the capture of policy by the military-industrial complex. That's corporate power uh, merging uh, with government power. That's the first one. The second one is the uh, Fed, is a rogue institution that is basically captive of Wall Street. That's why they keep you know, printing money like uh, they have been doing for decades now. And, uh, you know, that's uh, exactly what uh, Robert Kennedy is talking about there as well. Total capture of government institutions, in one case, the national security apparatus, in the second case, the uh, basic central bank by uh, private interests, And uh, it leads to some very, very bad <laughs> outcomes both domestically and internationally.
1: Gotcha. But these are things that these are things that Trump himself has been campaigning against, hasn't he? Or he, make, he, he, he these are things that he uses in his uh well, in his he, arguments.
0: You know, yes and no. That's a good point. He's not campaigning against the Fed. He's campaigning against the Fed, but he wants an easier Fed, okay? <laughs> uh, I want a Fed that Wall Street doesn't like, all right? They're, they're mm. Totally different. I want a Fed that's prudent, uh that uh, pursues sound money policy. Trump wants a Fed that prints even more money than the flood we already have. When it comes to defense, it's weird. He talks about America first. He talks about You know, NATO should pay its fair share of the tab and all that. But when he got in, he inherited a defense budget of six hundred billion, which was already way too big, bloated beyond Mm. any rational uh, need. And he took it up to eight hundred and fifty billion. In other words, he he never saw a request from the defense department from uh, from the generals uh, for money that he didn't uh, like that he wasn't uh, ready to uh, embrace lock, stock, and barrel. Now, why was that? Well, because Trump fancies himself as the greatest negotiator to ever come down the pike. I guess he learned that in the Queens uh, as a real estate developer in his early life. And uh, if he has, you know, an $850 billion defense budget behind him, even if it's a big waste, unnecessary, um, uh, he thinks he's accomplished something. But he's so wrong. Because when you give the Defense Department and National Security Apparatus and all those agencies all that money, they use it to buy political support. (laughs) That's where, you know, they use it uh, basically to perpetuate their missions, their manpower, their budget levels, and so forth. So, you know, Trump isn't very smart, uh, to tell you the truth, when it comes to how the world works. Uh, You know, he may have been a street-smart gambler uh, from Queens and got lucky in the real estate business, but he's never studied, he's lazy, he's uninformed, uh, he's impetuous, uh, he's fairly dangerous.
1: Okay oh well I mean this is uh, yeah it's been a, a real uh, yeah a really great conversation David and very uh, very forthright and uh, I expect you'll get a lot of reactions to your book for sure uh, I suppose one thing I'd, I'd like to ask before I leave uh, so you're someone who you've you've worked you've been in Congress you've been a, a representative and you've also you're a director of the office of uh sorry management, management and budget, management, uh, and
0: budget yeah.
1: management and budget in the Reagan and, administration correct uh, what was what was that like I mean I mean that's that's a celebrated administration I mean uh, obviously one of your most uh you know uh distinguished or famous presidents and you know lots of really good people in that administration what was it like uh, on the ground working in it
0: well uh it was a pretty exciting time uh, at least an effort was made to try to Uh, Contain the behemoth (laughs) that had built up uh, on the banks of the Potomac. Uh, And it's interesting to note that when Reagan was sworn in in January 1981, I became budget director. The first thing we had to do, because we inherited this mess from Jimmy Carter, was to raise the national debt limit above a trillion dollars for the first time. We didn't have any choice. But where are we today? The public debt is 34 trillion. <laughs> and we were struggling with one and we thought you know it was a, the world was going to come to an end. That's how far things have drifted. Now, of course, the economy is three times bigger, but the the debt the public debt is 34 times bigger. So uh, you know, it's um, uh, and then during that period, uh, we had our ups and downs, but uh, at the end of the day, Only minor progress was made in shrinking the size of the federal budget. We cut taxes deeply. Uh, We were going to cut spending to match the tax cuts. The spending cuts didn't happen because the Republicans really were not willing to walk the plank in Congress. And because defense spending uh, got totally out of control and ate up all the savings that we were getting domestically. So essentially, the fiscal calamity that the country is struggling with still today, and that Trump made infinitely worse, uh, originated in the early 1980s. Not by purpose, not by intention, uh, but, uh, you know, by uh, the re- result of the political and policy battles that occurred in the Reagan era. But the one thing that was different is we had Volcker as chairman of the Fed. Volcker was the last of the sound-money Fed chairman. And he said, Mm. you know, I'm not going to finance the federal uh, deficit. You guys want to run up the red ink? Then you're going to fund it honestly in the bond pits. Interest rates are going to go up and it'll be on your watch. And so he did bring inflation uh, to heel, but he was the last of them. And In fact, he was so unpopular with the Republican politicians who ran Reagan. You know, by the end, Reagan wasn't with it that much uh, the last two years. Uh, They convinced him to... uh, not reappoint Volker and put in Alan Greenspan instead, and you know the rest is history. Greenspan was a disaster.
1: Yes, uh, I mean he—he he certainly his uh, his legacy. Uh, initially, after he retired, he was seen as the the maestro. But then the yeah. financial crisis, and there's yeah. been a big reassessment of uh, of Greenspan's legacy since then, for sure. Absolutely, I, m- I might have to cover that on a a future show because it's a, yeah, it, he's a it's a you know there's a lot of history a lot of uh, to go over there but uh yeah. yeah david stockman this has been terrific i really enjoyed talking about your new book i think it's an important book it's uh it's thought provoking i expect it will be uh controversial and will will should you know, should be uh prominent in the uh the upcoming uh debate uh, over the rest of this year so uh uh thanks so much for for participating i'll put a link in the show notes uh, to your book. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say to wrap up? Well, I think we've covered a lot of good ground. Uh,
0: but I think the answer is, uh, you know, people really need to uh, look beyond the headlines and what the mainstream media is telling you or what the politicians are boasting about and uh, get a grasp on the facts, because we've got some pretty uh, uh, difficult, uh, you know, economic times uh, to grapple with as we go
1: forward. Absolutely. David Stockman, thanks so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. Very good. Thank you. Righto. Thanks for listening to this episode of Economics Explored. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email via contact at economicsexplored.com or a voicemail via Speakpipe. You can find the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could tell anyone you think would be interested about it. Word of mouth is one of the main ways that people learn about the show. Finally, if your podcasting app lets you, then please write a review and leave a rating. Thanks for listening. I hope you can join me again next week. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more content like this, or to begin your own podcasting journey, head on over to obsidian-productions.com.